Let's get going. I do think that we'll make it through. Uh, I purposely covered and spent a lot of time on the earthly ministry of Christ. I do think it's an issue where a lot of people are confused uh, today. And uh, so we wanted to spend a lot of information doing that. But we will cover um, all of our material, and I think that we'll be able to get through it. Um, Let's bow in a word of prayer, and then we can get started. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being here and just thank you for your grace and how you provide that for us. And just thankful for our, for our position in Christ and your son and um, that that never changes. It doesn't matter uh, what happens with us here on this earth. And we're so thankful that that's a constant that we can actually depend upon. And so we're thankful for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And so we left off on page 20 of our outline and we need to get to page 44 and I, I think we'll make it. <laughs> You don't believe me. Watch. (laughs) Notice in verse we left on page 20 and we were talking about the hour and the fact that the son subjugated himself under the complete authority of men when he partook of the hour. And so that was the time when the son allowed men to do to him the things that he did. Remember in John, he says, no man takes my life. I give it. They couldn't have killed him if he didn't allow it to happen. And so he had to subjugate subjugate himself to men for the opportunity for that to happen. And so we see that the hour was a period in God's program when the Lord placed himself under the authority of men. And remember, he had told his mother, my hour had not yet come. Well, notice in Matthew chapter 26, the hour had arrived in Matthew chapter 26. And we'll find it in verse 38. Matthew 26. Now, you just understand that the son was not aimlessly doing things while he was on the face of the earth. What did he continue to say? John chapter 6 as an example. I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, I would to God that I could say that I've only done the things that God wanted me to do. (laughs) Can anybody here say that? No. I mean... I I wish I could say that. I I haven't. I I haven't. But, you know, when you're living in the will of God, you get close to hitting exactly what God wants you to do. And that's why it's so important to know how to to overcome your enemies. That class that Courtney is is teaching on uh, your position in Christ is, I think, is crucial. I mean, I think as a believer understands that information, it stabilizes you and it helps you to be able to do what God wants you to do. But notice in the 25th chapter and verse 38, chapter 25 of Matthew and verse 38. Um, did I say 26? You said- oh, it is 26. <laughs> I changed it on you. 26 and 38. Thank you, Cherie. You're keeping me in line. <laughs> so here he is. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll pick it up in verse 36. Then come Jesus with them into the, a place called Gethsemane, and said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now, I don't think he's faking here. So you have to understand he's 100% man, he's 100% God. Now, the only thing is, if you don't believe that, then you're, you're, you're led to believe that he's just pretending. That he really feels this. No, he's not pretending. This is real. And so notice, um, he says, then he says unto them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me. Uh, Nevertheless. Not as I will, but as thou wilt. And so we were looking at two things. We were looking at the cup, and then we were looking at the hour. The cup is the suffering that he was going to undergo. The hour is the period of time that it was going to take place. Remember when James and John was fighting over who's going to sit at what side of the throne? He says, can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? They, they made the wrong, said the wrong answer. Yes, we can. (laughs) They should have said no. And when you look at history and you see it in the book of Acts, they did drink of the cup and it wasn't good. And so notice 
he says, nevertheless, not as I desire, but as thou desire. And he comes into the disciples and he finds them asleep. And he says unto Peter, what could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation, for the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Notice in verse 42, he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, uh, if this cup may not pass away from me, uh, except I drink of it, uh, thy will be done. Now, this is not this is actually talking about the cup. I was looking for the scripture that actually dealt with the hour. Well, it's down in 45. (laughs) If I just keep reading and he came and found him asleep again. For their eyes were heavy. Now, I think that they understood what was going on, some of what was going on here. And I think that they were really despondent. And I think one of the uh, gospel writers actually said that. I can't remember which one. And he left them uh, and went away again. And he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he cometh to his disciples and said unto them, sleep on now. Take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, there are some things that they didn't understand. And you, we have to not be so hard on the disciples because we have illumination and we can understand some things because of the way the Holy Spirit is working with us that they never could understand. And so some of the things were not revealed to them that is revealed to you and I today. And look no further than Luke chapter 18 to understand that. And so they're stumbling through and there's a lot of things. Remember, he told them in in, uh, the upper room, I'm saying things to you and the Holy Spirit will bring it back to your remembrance after the fact. You see, so we we have to put it all together and understand that there were things that were done that the disciples never could understand. And so they didn't understand a lot of it until later. Now, we'll turn over to page 21. The son subjugated himself during the days of his flesh, and it can be seen in his temptation by Satan. And so Satan tempted the Lord to act independent of the father. Satan's solicitation to him was to take control of the kingdoms of the world ahead of the the appointed time. And so here's the thing. So the kingdoms of the world has been turned over to Satan. God is allowing Satan to run the kingdoms of this world. That is a fact. And so we see that in Luke chapter four. The question was under this temptation is would the son in the realm of his humanity act independent of the father to take the kingdoms ahead of the father's time? Right. So it's a real temptation that Satan offers to him. And you see it. Notice in uh, Luke. Well, let's go down. I don't think I gave you Luke, but let's go there and then we'll back up to Revelation in Luke chapter four. This wouldn't be a real temptation. It would be like me saying to you, Dave, I will offer you a million dollars if you can answer this riddle. And you would just laugh at me, right? Because, you know, I don't have a million (laughs) dollars. So it really doesn't matter. Right. So Satan is telling him here, I will give these kingdoms to you if you bow down and worship me. Now, wouldn't that be funny? Why would that even be a temptation if Satan did not have the kingdoms? It's only a real temptation if he possessed them, you see. And now notice in Luke Luke chapter 4, and you'll see, and we'll pick it up at verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And being 40 days tempted of the devil... And again, we know this is in the realm of his humanity because we have a scripture in James that says God cannot be tempted by evil. Right. So in his the realm of his deity, there's no way he could have been tempted in the realm of his humanity. This is what's happening. And why do I keep emphasizing that? Because it's very important that he experience a human life. You have to understand that this is not make believe. He's not pretending here. In the realm of his humanity, this was something that he felt. And remember, we looked at scripture that said that he learned obedience. And so what are we to believe? Are they just making this up when they say it? No. It's real. And so notice. It says here he was tempted of the devil 40 days and he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. 
And the devil said unto him, and again, it's a first class condition because the devil knows who he is. People may not know who he is, but the devil could see right through his humanity. He knew who he was. And he says, really, it's since you be the son of God, command this stone that it, be made, it may be made bread. Now, see, Satan would never tempt me that way, right? Can you think he would come to Kevin and say, since you be a believer, turn this stone to bread? I couldn't do that. He knows that. But he knew that the son could do it. And so notice in verse four, and Jesus answered and said, I'm saying it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word of God. And the devil takes him up to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And so it shows you the supernatural ability that Satan has, that he could show him in the realm of his humanity, all the kingdoms that would ever exist in the world system in a flash of time. Can you do that? And notice, and the devil says to him, all this, now notice what's really important here, this is not the word power that is used here. It's the word authority. And so remember the difference between power? Power is the ability to do something. Authority is the right to be able to do it. And so he says, all of this authority I will give to thee and the glory of them for that it is given unto, delivered unto me and whomsoever I will and I will, I will give it. If you therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. Now, you see the Lord didn't tell him that's not true. He didn't refute one thing that Satan said here. He had the opportunity to say, no, that's a lie. And most of the time when you see that people say something to him that's not true, he refutes it. He does not refute this. And we're going to see the reason why. Since thou be will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered him, said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him alone shalt thou serve. Now, we saw this before, and it, and it bears showing you again in Revelation chapter 11 what happens. And this is just a glorious thing because we're coming with him, and we're going to be with him when he comes back at the end of the tribulation period. And uh, you know my favorite verse in Second Thessalonians. It's going to be a glorious thing to see all of these people who say that they know it all and they got it figured out, right? These, because, you know, when you get to the end of the tribulation period, you're going to have the stubborn of the stubborn. These are not going to be innocent people, you see. They would have gone through the tribulation period, saw all of the plagues, and you see in Revelation 16, they see that the Son is the one that is causing these plagues and they still won't repent. And so, here. Yeah. You're going to get to the end of it, and boy, he's coming back, and it's going to be in a blaze of glory. And you and I are going to be there. And I've experienced this with my brothers on a smaller scale. It's glorious. (laughs) When you go back and you come back with your big brothers, it's a glorious thing. (laughs) It's glorious. (laughs) Notice what happens here. Verse 13, and the same hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and then the earthquake was slain. Uh, of men, seven thousand and the remnants were frightened, were frightened and gave glory and, and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is past and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And then the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign into the ages. You see, he's going to get the kingdoms. But the father has a plan of when that's going to happen. What Satan was trying to get him to do was act independent of the father and take the kingdoms ahead of time. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to suffer? Right. And you can just jump to the end. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? That's what the temptation was here. You see. And so Satan tempted them ahead to act ahead of schedule. The temptation of the Lord occurred solely in the realm of his humanity It was only there where temptation could occur. God cannot be tempted by evil. The temptation was made possible by the weakened state of the Lord who hungered after spending 40 days and and 40 nights in the wilderness without eating. The Lord being tempted suffered. The word suffered in the Greek means to undergo evils or to be afflicted. The temptation of the Lord was necessary for his high priestly ministry because he was tempted in the realm of his humanity. He is able to help believers who are tempted. So you could sympathize with somebody 
And you can say, oh, boy, it's just so sad what you've, you've gone through. I've never gone through it, but I can understand. Or you could empathize with someone where you say, oh, I've been through that. I understand what it's like to go through that. And there is a difference. And so notice in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18, and we've, we've shown you this before. <clears throat> in Hebrews 2 and verse 18. It's just it's an amazing scripture here when we understand that the son put himself in a position to suffer in order to understand what it's like to suffer in a human body. Now, just to say if the ant world wanted to bring you down to their world and say, Cherie, why don't you come down and suffer with us and see what our world is like? I mean, if you had the chance to exchange that, would you do it? No, who would do it? But the son put himself on a lower state than that. To empathize what it's like to be in this human body. And notice why he wanted the reasons he did it. Notice he says in verse 17, wherefore in all things, see that word it behooves. Um, it's, uh, actually, it's uh, that uh, he was under obligation to be made, really it's a moral obligation, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for that in that he himself suffered, um, being tempted, he is able to, the word succor, is come to the aid of, of those who are tempted. Isn't that a neat thing? So now you can go and you could, um, it says if you confess your sins, we have, where he's, the Father is faithful and just to forgive us. Why? We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he's advocating on behalf of the believer. And we're going to see that. Now he understands that because of the fact that he has in this human body, experience what it's like to be tempted. Now, go over to chapter 4, since we're in Hebrews, and you can see that, that this is related to his high priestly ministry, and we'll see this. Verse 14, seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now, the high high priest on the law, ministered on the earth in an earthly tabernacle. And he's making this an emphasis that he went through all of the heavens. First time that someone took a human body and went through the first heaven, the second heaven, and right into the third heaven. Now, why did he do that? Now, I think that the spirit beings were watching this, and I think it blew their minds that he took a human body. No one. He told Nicodemus in in John chapter 3, not one human being had gone into the third heaven before he took his human body up there. Nobody had. Well, you can see that in Luke 16, that every Old Testament saint that died before then went to Sheol. And you see it over and over again in the the Old Testament. I mean, yeah, in the Old Testament. And so he went through all of the heavens, And notice in verse 15, for we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our our infirmities. That word infirmities is weaknesses. And it's dealing with physical weaknesses, spiritual weaknesses. And so he says, we don't have one that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Or really it's to, that word feeling is really, he has the ability to suffer together. And so this pathos with that soon preposition, he can identify with our sufferings. Why? He's going to tell you. Uh, but, but as all points was tempted as we are yet without sin. Or I would say here, apart from a sin nature, he didn't have a sin nature. And so he was tempted, but he understands in the realm of it and being tempted by Satan, the process of what happens when you're tempted. What's that? What that's like? Thought comes to the mind. Right. And how that plays out to temptation. And so you see that how that works. 
And so that's in the realm of his humanity. Now the son preached four prominent messages during his earthly ministry. We have the Sermon on the Mount. Did we talk about this before? Yes. Okay, I think we're way behind. We're way ahead. I, okay, nobody stopped me. <laughs> well, maybe someone needed that. Maybe someone needed that. Okay, back in 24. <laughs> Additionally, the son preached a message during the... So we talked about the fact that he preached four different messages until so you had the Sermon on the Mount... You heard the Mount Olivet Discourse, which was in Matthew 24. You had the Upper Room Discourse, which is a, it's a huge sermon that he preached, and it's from 13 through 17. And what is, is significant in that message that he preached is it was after Judas left the room. Now, why is that significant? Can anybody tell me why that's significant? It clearly says after Judas left the room, he began to preach that message. Notice in John chapter 13. Would to God that we could have all the unsaved people leave the room out of the church. (laughs) We could really have a good time then, couldn't we? That's not going to happen until the rapture. (laughs) Um, So notice in John chapter 13. He says to... um, um, well, pick it up in verse 27. And after the sop, Satan entered into him, talking about Judas. Then Jesus said unto them, unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Now, here again, you can see that the disciples, it's like they were out to lunch. Right. He already told them, whoever I give the sop to, this is the one who's going to betray me. But that is not immediately what their mind went to. Right. We could think of probably a dozen people in situations that if this came up, you say, oh, yeah, this is the person he's talking about. They're going to do it. (laughs) But they didn't think that way. They didn't immediately think that Judas was the one. Notice in verse 28. Now, no man knew at the table uh, at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag. And we know from other uh, gospel writers that we know what he was doing with the bag. He was stealing. (laughs) He was a thief. And this is why he said of the woman that had oil that was rubbing, um, washing Jesus's feet with the oil. This money could have this oil could have been taken and sold (laughs) to given to the poor. And that was not what he was thinking about. And he says. Because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him by those things which we have need against a feast or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received this up, went immediately out and it was night. Now notice you hear you have something very important said here in verse 31. Therefore, remember, when you see therefore, see what it's there for. Judas has left. So now you have only believers in the room. And now he can talk about things to come. And so the next three chapters, he's going to tell them things that are going to happen in the future. And uh, when he was going out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and the God is glorified in him. And then he goes on to begin the upper room discourse. And I think that we talked about that. So from 13 to 17, it is a message that laid the foundation of the dispensation of grace. In this message, the Lord outlines his plan, not for Israel, not for Israel, not for Israel. I'm not stuck. I'm not a broken record. I want to make sure you hear it. 16, 13 through 17 has nothing to do with the nation of Israel. But for the church. And so notice he outlines this plan. And so. Um, um, for but for a people that was coming after his departure, the Lord significantly did not begin the message until after Jesus's departure from the room. The message was preached the night the Lord was betrayed. And in the message, the Lord informed the disciples of a new commandment that he was giving. Now, I was talking to someone about this this weekend, and it's really important to understand several things here in verse 34. So uh, they were saying that some people were arguing with them or talking to them about the commandment. And they um, most of the time when you see a word, you can't look at the word as having the same meaning in every context. You have to look at the context. And so I've said it before. 
in real estate, what is it? Location, location, location determines how expensive a house is going to be or not. In scripture, the important thing to understand in scripture, context, context, context. It really is going to determine how a word is being used. Now he says here, he gives you an adjective here that really should help you to understand it is not the Mosaic law. A new commandment. Well, if I told you I have a new car, would you think it was my old car? Well, if new means anything, and this really is the word kainos, it's a new in kind, a new kind of commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, we don't have time, but you can go back to Matthew 22. This is new and, and different from the, the commandment that was given under law. And what was given under law? Love your neighbor as yourself. What's the standard? You. What's the standard today? The Lord. The Lord is the standard, you see. And that's a totally different standard. And it ain't even close. It ain't even close. And then the significant thing here is that you love one another. Here's one person, you. You're loving one another. Where here's two people in the same group loving each other. Well, who set the standard? The Lord, as I have loved you. Now he's going to say, by this thing, verse 35, shall all men know that you're my disciples by your love one for another. So somebody's looking at these two, this group here, loving each other, right? Well, who is this group over here who's identifying it if they're all the same? Does this make any sense to you? And I, you know, you just hear it all the time. Love everybody. We're supposed to love everybody. It's the craziest thing. You just, people can't even read English. And, and it's really done a real job on the church. That statement has really done severe damage to the church. And so really by the believers, as the believers are able to love each other, there's a testimony to the world. Something about God's life in activity. And so a lot of believers have gotten themselves in trouble by saying that and taking on things they really shouldn't be taking on. <clears throat> so notice. Um, so additionally, in verse 24, uh, page 24, the son preached a message during his time. Uh, his body was laid in the tomb. And this is a message I wish we had heard. We don't have anything about it. He went down and he preached a message while his body was in the tomb. In his spirit, he went down to Hades and preached a message. Wouldn't you have liked to have known? I like <laughs> <laughs> just want to find out what, what happened here. Well, notice in 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, you see this. And we're not told anything about it, what he said. We can only guess. 1 Peter 3. Verse 19 through 20. Now notice he says in verse 17, For it is better if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, um, or in the Spirit, (coughs) by which... Also, he went and he preached to the spirits in prison. Now, did you know that? Well, where were they at? Which were sometimes disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. Huh. Now, we've told you, and, and I think there's scriptural enough evidence in Jude, in Genesis, um, and First Peter, to put this together and see that these were angels that sin during the days of Noah. I don't think it's even close. And I know that some people, they don't agree with that. I know J. Vernon McGee, if you listen to him on his broadcast, when he gets to Genesis, he almost has a stroke saying that these weren't angels. Well, I'm sorry, J. Vernon, I disagree with you. 
I think that the scriptural evidence, excuse me, he knows the truth now (laughs) that these were uh, spirit beings that cohabitated with the daughters of men. And it's it's so clear to see. Um, We'll just hold your finger. I just want to show you here. Notice in Jude. You'll see it. Hold your finger there just to give you a little background if you're not familiar with it. And Jude, uh, we'll pick it up in Jude. Jude talks about it. And he says in Jude chapter 5, I will put, uh, Jude verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness in the judgment of the great day. Now, notice also in Peter, and I think it's in Second uh, Peter, chapter 2. He tells you where these angels are located. And so notice he says, for if God spared not the angels that sin. Well, when did they sin? When did they sin? And cast them down to where? Hell. Or really, the word hell there is the, it comes right out of the Greek, um, classical Greek. It's the word for Tartarus, which is actually the sides of the pit. So if you had, um, if you had this, you had this circle. You have Hades here, uh, just to say, um, Abraham's bosom. Then you had this gulf. Then you had the unsaved. And so here on this side, you had the pits where I believe these angels are incarcerated. Right. And we see in the the book of Revelation that these angels are going to come up out of the abyss and they're going to torture people during the tribulation period. And so he says, the, the, if the God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. You see. And so these angels are incarcerated now. Well, when did they sin? You say, well, they sinned when Satan sinned. Well, then why not all of the angels down there that did that? Right. Then why would there be demons? You see, this is not all the ones that fell. There's a certain group of angels that did something bad. And it goes back to Genesis 6. It's so easy to see from Scripture when you just let Scripture say what it says, you see. And so notice in 1 Peter chapter 3, he went down and he preached a message to these spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was preparing, wherein a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And so here you have this message that he preached. And I give you some of the information that we know about it. But we don't have the title of the message. Nor did he give us an outline. And boy, I would say that I want to ask the Lord that when we get to heaven. But that's not going to be what we're focused on. (laughs) That's not going to be something we're focused on. But you see these messages that he preached uh, throughout the course of his earthly ministry. Um, And so you have that one uh, that he preached there as he was uh, his body was in the grave. And uh, notice he went up into um, before he was resurrected. And so um, going to page 25, there are several reasons for Christ preaching a sermon to the spirit beings in Hades. Christ's sermon was used to prove that God's plan and purpose could not be thwarted by the spirit beings. So there's conjecture that what he did. Remember, if you go back over to first Corinthians, it says that if the spirit beings had known that by crucifying the Lord would have brought to us what he would have brought to us, they would have never killed him. So I think and there's a possibility and this is plausible that he went down to the spirit beings and said, you missed. <laughs> Possible. We'd like to think that that's what he said, (laughs) but we don't have enough scripture to say that. Christ's sermon was used to provide graphic evidence that the wisdom of God is superior to that of spirit beings. No matter what they try to come up with, God is so many different steps ahead of them. It doesn't work. 
And so spirit beings showed that they thought that the wisdom, their wisdom was superior to God's wisdom when they conspired to kill the Lord. And we can see that they were involved in that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that they were behind. Well, anytime you see lying, you know that you have demons involved in it. Anytime you see lying, you know that you have Satan and demons involved. And so they were conspiring to get the Lord crucified. And one of the ways they did that is by telling lies. Remember, they bore false witnesses uh, against him. The suffering of the son was a significant part of the father's will during his earthly ministry. The Lord's suffering was prophesied by Old Testament prophets. Isaiah prophesied the suffering servant of Jehovah, that that the uh, servant of Jehovah would suffer. And you see that in Isaiah chapter 53. The Lord prophesied his sufferings on numerous occasions in the Gospels. And just let's look at one in Luke chapter 18 is probably one of the best places to see it. He told his disciples several times uh, some of the things that were going to happen to him. And they just they didn't want to hear it. And again, one of the reasons and again, we have to understand context here. The reason that they didn't want to hear it was because their minds were so focused not on the kingdom of God, but on the kingdom from the heavens. So when, Pete, when he told Peter in Matthew chapter 16, he, says, he asked them, who do men say the Son of Man is? And they say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now he, they, he begins to tell them, don't teach anyone, don't tell anyone that, that anymore. And that's when Peter says, be it far from you, Lord. When he tells them, I've got to suffer, go die, be buried and raised again. And he says, no, I just told you you're the Messiah. What are you talking about? You got to die? They don't understand that. Now, notice you see it here in Luke 18, verse 31. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go to, to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and, they, and he shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day. He shall rise again. And notice 34, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we understand. Yeah, we're right there with you. Right. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. Now, you and I, if somebody preached these things and you didn't understand them, you would probably be carnal. Or maybe you wonder if the person is not even saved. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit illuminating them in the way that you and I are illuminated today. And there's a lot of things they did not understand. And some of the things they were told was just for future reference. And so. Um, what do I have? Two pages, two twenty five here. On page twenty six. Um, <laughs> did I give you two twenty five? Oh, OK. No, I don't know. The word for suffer there in Luke 18 is, uh, is the Greek word pathos, and it's translated in the English meaning passions uh, from jo- Joseph Thayer in his lexicon. He describes passion as in a bad sense of misfortunes to undergo evils, to be afflicted. The suffering that Christ endured is outlined by him there in Luke. And so notice the, the words that we saw there. He shall be mocked. The word mocked is the word impazo, and it means to make fun of someone by pretending that he is not what he is, or by imitating him in a distortive manner. Remember the soldiers when they were slapping him saying, who, prophesy who hit you, right? Yeah. This kind of mockery they, they did of him. And this word for uh, spitefully entreated is the word huperizo. It's to mistreat someone in an abusive, uh, through abusive actions, to punish in a humiliating way. And then you have the word for spit it upon, it's tuo, um, which is understood as a gesture of extreme contempt. Man, when someone spits on someone, you know that that's just, that's just the worst thing you can do to a human being, right? It's to spit on them. And, um, and that, that was what was happening. And notice the words for scourge is having scourged them. Uh, it's the word uh, apen, um, uh, tino, uh, to call someone's death normally by violent means, with or without intent. Uh, uh, with uh, with uh, out legal justification, and so the Lord told him that this was going to happen, and that this was uh, part of it of what he had to accomplish during his earthly ministry. Now, 
there's a lot of speculation today concerning him at the bottom of that uh, paragraph four uh, as to who is responsible for the death of Christ. Scripture implicates Israel in the betrayal of Christ. Um, uh, as well as the Gentiles. And so you see both. Right. And so Christ was betrayed by Judas to the Jews and the Jews to the Gentiles. And the chief priests and the scribes plotted to entrap Christ for the purpose of delivering him to the authorities. And so five independent witnesses implicated the Jews in the betrayal of Christ. You have the Lord himself implicates the Jews in the betrayal of Christ. Peter implicates the Jews in the Jews in the betrayal of Christ. Pilate implicated the Jews in the betrayal of Christ. And let's look at that. And we'll see that in uh, John chapter 18 and verse 35. So you see both um, as you have the Jews as well as the Gentiles. And we'll see um, the Gentiles as well had a hand in it. So we were not um, we were not uh, innocent in this. And John chapter 18 and verse 35. Um, Notice in verse 34, and Jesus answered him, saying, Does thou say this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of thee? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest has delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not out of this world. And so so this is a, a source thing. So he's saying, My kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. When you have the kingdoms of this world, you know, you have war and you have subjects who fight to bring about what they want, the end they want brought about. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would, would, would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And so you see that the Jews were uh, a part of this. Now, notice Stephen indicated that the Jew, uh, implicated the Jews in the betrayal of Christ over in Acts chapter seven. And um Scripture cites two reasons why they did it. One, you see, they were envious of him. This is an interesting thing. Envy will cause you to ignore things that are true. Right. So when he heals the blind man in John chapter nine, they could not acknowledge that he healed a man and that was blind who had been blind all of his life. What did they do? They tried to come up with an excuse. Oh, he did it on the Sabbath. This man can't be of God. He healed on the Sabbath. Right. And so notice here, and we'll just take a second to look at that in um, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 18. Pilate knew why they, they were they were giving him over. And this is very interesting because it implicates Pilate. He knew better, but he was playing politics. Notice in verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had uh, then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom were you that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, whom is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. And so Pilate was very aware of what was going on. He really shouldn't have done it, but he did. And then notice uh, another reason they were ignorant of who who Christ was. And notice you see this in Acts 3. Peter says this in his message uh, to the Jews in Acts chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. So it was ignorant envy. Uh, It's why they delivered him over. Now notice in verse 15. Peter is saying to to verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, had glorified his son, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate. Now, they keep bringing this up. The apostles, they keep bringing this up to the to the Jews. You killed him. You put him to death. And they begin to get angry and continue to say, don't put this man's blood on our hands. Right. And he says, you denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. See, Pilate knew they were envious. He wanted to let him go. He had made up his mind that he was going to let him go. 
But the Jews put them in and they leveraged them. And so notice in verse 14, but you denied the Holy One and the Just One and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God had raised up from the dead. Wherefore, you are witnesses. You see, now notice as we go down in verse 16 and his name and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see now and yea, the faith which is by him has given him the perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I see that word. I what? I know. Now, that's an old English word. I what? You ever heard somebody say that lately? <laughs> I know that through ignorance, you see, this idea of ignorance, it's a uh, gnosko with that alpha prerogative. They were without understanding. They didn't understand that you did it and did also your rulers, you see. And so the Jews sought uh, Judas to carry out their betrayal by stealth. The Jews did not want to take Christ openly because they feared a disturbance among the people. Judas, Judas's help was necessary if the Jewish leaders were to take Christ without incident. Judas was one of the 12 disciples, and so he could alert the Jews to the proper time to seize Jesus. Judas could uh, alert the Jews to the proper place to seize Jesus. The Gentiles are implicated in Scripture for conspiring with the Jews to put the Lord to death. And so you see that as an example in Acts 4 and verse 25 through 28. Now, this is a big subject. Um, A lot of people um, have said, and a lot of the Jews are really concerned when people say this. There was a fellow who attended our church some years ago. And as we were preaching on this, boy, they don't want you to say this, but they think that it, it brings persecution on the Jews to say this, what Scripture is actually saying, you see. And they think that a lot of the persecution, even going back to uh, the Hitler, is a result of disbelief. But you see, it's both sides of it. Not only did the Jews do it, but the Gentiles did as well. And so notice you see this here in Acts chapter 4. Um, what did I say? Oh, 25. Notice and we'll pick it up in verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathens rage? And this is coming right out of Psalms chapter two. And the people, this is looking at the the Jews, imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth stood up and and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For a truth, um, for for a, a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. You see that? And so you can see that that's just right out of Psalms chapter 2, which prophesied that 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 was going to happen. And that the Jews are implicated, the Gentiles are implicated. And this putting to death of the son. And so the son's death is significant uh, to God's plan and purposes. And you could see it there. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Hebrews that it was necessary for the Lord to taste death. The word taste is uh, gunamai, which means to sample a product for the purpose of determining its legitimacy. And so the purpose of the Lord taking on death is explained in Hebrews 2.10. The Apostle used the phrase for it becomes him, or the statement is better understood, it was fitting or proper or suitable for him. The suitableness is seen in God the Father making the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Consequently, his death was another way of causing the Son to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest. And so there are several terms in Scripture to emphasize the Son's substitutionary death. The common word that is used in the Greek word is the word apothenesco, which is used in scripture to denote the act of one dying a violent death. 
The word is used numerous times in the New Testament concerning the death of Christ. The word is used several times in the book of Romans to emphasize the death of Christ. It is used to emphasize Christ's uh, death for or on behalf of. The word is used to emphasize the sufficiency of the death of Christ to the believer's security. And it is also used to emphasize the purpose of why Christ died. And the result of Christ suffering such a violent death is that so that the believer can live. And so let's, um, we'll try to, well, we'll just read and try to close out this uh, page 28 and then we'll finish off next week. The term, um, uh, let's see, let's go to um, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.15. And so notice um, here Paul is talking about the uh, reason for his motivation for um, doing the things that he did and how he conducted himself during um, his ministry. And he says, uh, verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God. And I trust also made manifest in your consciences, for we command not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is of God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all uh, were dead. And in that he died for all, they which, uh, that they which live should not henceforth live un- unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And so this idea that he died on behalf of us, that the ones living, and if, uh, that word for living is the word zoe, uh, part of the simple form of conducting a life here on this earth, might do it on behalf of the one having died and been raised. And so you see that that's the reason why that he did this. And so, this other one, this term, it goes, I think, with First uh, Thessalonians 5.10. I think, uh, no, I'm sorry, it's in Acts, about this um, further, uh, impl- um, um, uh, <laughs> let me get, I'll get it out, uh, communicating the fact of him laying down his life. And so to lay down his life is used several times in the New Testament to emphasize the voluntary nature of the son, accomplishing what, the fa- what pleased the father. The word lay is the term tithemi, which means to place aside something. And the term crucified is used to emphasize the type of death that Christ died. And so we'll see next week that what crucifixion was. And then we'll get into his high priestly ministry, which will overlap with where Courtney is uh, in the class on um, in Christ's truth. And the fact that Christ today um, is interceding for us, that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's, in a, he's, he's uh, engaging in intercessory ministry now, which is very important to understand.